Life Issues with Vicky Gibbons on UCB One. Welcome to another Life Issues on UCB as we talk parenting. When a couple decides to start a family, a plethora of emotions and thoughts can start to spin in their minds. The hopes, dreams, expectations, anxieties, but above all else, most commonly, mum or dad-to-be wants their child to be healthy and happy. The first opportunity to really meet your little boy or girl normally arrives on a screen courtesy of an ultrasound scan and you carefully listen, watch and wait for the heartbeat. But what do you do if what follows next is the news that your baby has abnormalities? For some children, thankfully, they can be treated with the right medication, operation or support. However, birth defects can be severe and ultimately life-threatening. Hymn writer, ordained minister of the Church of Scotland and member of the Iona community, John Bell, admits to how faith isn't an insurance policy against disaster, but the means by which we can walk through the darkest of valleys and believe that there will yet be light. How did Karen and Gordon Palmer find God's light whilst travelling the darkest of valleys with their first child Jennifer Grace born to them only to die hours later? It's today's Life Issues. I'm Vicky Gibbons and thank you for being with us for this conversation. Karen and Gordon, let's start with how you met. It was through the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship. Gordon, you were at Edinburgh and Karen at Aberdeen. You then got married the day before Karen graduated. Karen, why did you want to enter the world of medicine and specialising in psychiatry? It was one of these things I just always, since I was little, wanted to be a doctor. Initially, I had thought maybe that that God was calling me overseas. And then when when I was... Um, when I qualified, I, I was still thinking that maybe I would do some kind of general training so that maybe some some time I, I could go overseas. But I I did I did six months psychiatry as part of that and just fell in love with psychiatry. And Gordon, how about you at that time thinking, you know, before starting family life, where were you at in terms of faith and ministry and leading a church? When Karen and I got together, it was clear to me that I was I was going into ministry, and so part of the deal would, you know, if she was going to be with me, is that she would be um, a minister's wife, and so we'd kind of gone into it together. We um, uh, were working to, you know, sought together as, as working in the parish. That first year, though, as Karen said, her hours were uh, huge, and um, but beyond that, we we had settled down. I think after that first year in terms of Karen being around a lot more and sharing together in the work. And we, we were both, I think, um, very happy um, in Rukhese where we were. But we'd actually been quite keen to start a family for, for a couple of years before before Jennifer came along. Um, and so we were kind of well geared up for it. So when it, um, we found out that Karen was, was uh, carrying Jennifer, we were just over the moon. Um, in fact, it was just, was a Christmas just before Christmas we we found out, and uh, it, it was it was just lovely, and we were looking forward to it. I don't think we had thought very far ahead in terms of it's going to be like this or it's going to be like like that, but just clear this was something that we we wanted to do together, and and this was the next stage of the next chapter unfolding. And how about your experience, Karen? Because initially you were perhaps at a different place to Gordon in terms of he was quite confident about the pregnancy. You were maybe a little bit more cautious. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe being a doctor, 
made me a bit more cautious. Um, a bit of family history as well. Maybe like my 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 mum had a little boy who just lived for three months. Um, I was aware that she'd also had a miscarriage. My grandmother um, had lost a little boy again, just very young. Um, uh, and I, rem- I remember driving along in the car um, once I knew um, I was pregnant, thinking, I don't have any friends that have had any problems having children. So maybe that makes me the person that's going to have problems. I remember that thought and just being feeling a bit kind of matter of fact about it almost. And I was working at um, a hospital for people with learning difficulties, um, severe learning difficulties. Um, and so, um, you know, it was all, all around me, just, just the possibilities of, of, of pregnancy not being straightforward. Keith was your younger brother. You were six years old at the time when Keith passed away. He was three months. Bereavement, support for siblings and care of mental health is so different today compared to what it was back in 1967. Growing up, were you aware so much of of grieving the loss of Keith? Um, I I was, but um, this sounds like a very disloyal thing to say, and maybe I can say it because my mum's no longer living, but it was always seen in our family as my mother's grief. Um, it wasn't ever it wasn't ever framed as as the family's grief. Um, so um, I think I think it was harder for my older brother. So I was six and he was eight. Um, my little brother doesn't remember much about it at all. Um, so uh, he, he would be he was three. Um, so he really has no memories of it. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was like a. a and I think I think probably it was the it was the effect of the grief on my mother also that was a very frightening thing for me as a child. Um, it felt like the world was ending because my mother was so distressed, and there was never anybody really to talk to me about that. And actually, that wasn't unravelled for me until many years later um, through going to um, cruise bereavement counselling for six sessions. Um, and the person that referred me there thought the problems I was having at the time were to do with Jennifer. But actually what was unravelled w- was that was that very frightening feeling when my mother was so distressed when I was six. Um, so, yeah, um, there's much more recognition about it now. There's much more support for grieving children and much more recognition of their grief, which is great. And it's something we'll come back to in a little while. Gordon, I was really struck in reading the story of Jennifer, how her story echoes Jesus's story. You start off with celebrating her potential arrival, you know, hearing the good news at Christmas, and then how things dramatically change in the run-up to Easter and Holy Week. Take us to, to what was happening in and around that time. Um, well, it was that, it was the Monday of Holy Week, and um, Karen was off, and Karen um, said and just said that she was uncertain about about the baby. She hadn't felt the baby kicking, and 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 so on. Um, and we we just went to the the hospital um, just to check. Um, and I suppose still at that point, I'm I'm still thinking Karen worries more than I do. This will be Karen being very, very concerned. Um, and it was then that we, at the hospital, we got the news that, um, in fact, there was something very badly wrong. The doctor said that 
um, he didn't think that Jennifer would, would go to term. Um, and he gave us a few days space to decide, you know, talk through what we were going to do. He was, he was absolutely great. Um, but yeah, mon- that Monday of Holy Week um, was when we found out that something was, was very, very wrong. Um, and in our local church for a few years, this hasn't really been a, a Church of Scotland practice widespread, certainly not in the early 90s, was, would be to have a, a service every night in Holy Week. Um, but we did. Um, and we divvied it up between different folks in the congregation. So both Karen and I were, were going. Um, but, and Karen, sorry, Karen had been involved, I think, in preparing the service, but, but wasn't going to be delivering it because, because of what we just found out. So she had had a hand in, in shaping the service. Um, and, and, and we were just very aware of just going through the, the pain and the suffering of, of Holy Week and Easter at um, that time. Karen, what about your response and where you were at? Because presumably you had, you had this family history. You were trusting in God up until that moment that actually things would be healthy and all right for the baby. And then suddenly we're at this time of approaching Easter where we know Jesus conquers the grave, you know, defeats the sting of death. And you have this prognosis that you're unlikely to go full term. What was, what was your reaction? I mean, the, the, the promise of resurrection wasn't, we didn't get there until uh, the Sunday of, uh, at the end of Holy Week. So I suppose where I was in that was, was, was just at the beginning of Holy Week and, and the service that, that Gordon's talking about. I, mean, I just think it was amazing. It lost my mind still to think about it. There were words, there was a refrain that we had put in for the service for, for people to say twice during the service. And it was a, a paraphrase really of Hosea 11 that, that the Wild Goose um, Worship Group had put together, where it's God saying, how can I give you up? My love for you is too strong. I'm God and not man. Um, and also the, the theme for that service was good news for the unimportant. And three times, we used a lot of responsive readings in Rakhese, three times the congregation had to say, thank you, God, that all of us are important to you. And it, it just was astonishing in terms of God saying, I, I know about this child and this child is really important to me and I love this child and there's no way I'm going to abandon this child or let her go. So having, having that on the Monday of Holy Week, just, I mean, nothing else kind of mattered, really. And I know that sounds a bit strange, but the fact that God loved her and that God, God had, God had organised all of that for us as a, as a, as a really um, blatant um, message that we just couldn't miss. Um, that that was a huge strength through the whole pregnancy, um, and I, you know, we knew that day that she wasn't likely to live. Uh, and over the next three days, we, we, we gradually came to terms with it. And that was before we got to Easter Sunday. And, and so the, the promise of the resurrection then was the prom- promise of a future, a future resurrection. You know, it wasn't that, oh, here, this is something that's promised and we're not getting it. It was definitely that the, the strength from Easter Sunday was knowing that death isn't the end. Karen, in the book, you explore about going to visit Gordon's parents and them asking the why question, which 
is perhaps so familiar for, for other couples who find themselves in that situation. The why is this happening to us? The could we have done anything to avoid it? Were those kind of questions not also running through through either of your minds? No, not not really, to be honest. Um, and and I mean, Gordon's explained it um, before in terms of where we were living because we were living in a an urban priority area um, with very remarkable people who had you know had coped and were coping with multiple tragedies and difficult situations and so people around uh, people around about us had gone through you know amazing suffering and still were um and they, they were the people who were part of our church um and who formed our church and so we, we we didn't somehow somehow it didn't feel a relevant question to ask at the time because suffering was just part and parcel of of life for the people that we were with just that you, the, the why me became quickly why not me. Um, I, I think Karen said yeah, their context very much meant that we were working with folks in incredible hurt, um, and and there's a sense in which I found it almost offensive to think that we should be kind of somehow exempt from that. Um, so so it was very. That, I think that probably the context made it a lot easier. And in those few days where you'd obviously had that initial initial prognosis, you then went away from the hospital before going back to see Dr. Matthew, who sounds like a, a remarkable doctor that you were in the care of. You had a cascade of prayers and support from a whole network of not just the church, but family and friends as well. It was something that you decided to go public about and share what was happening. Some some perhaps would close doors and, and shun people away, but you chose not to. Yeah, I mean, everybody everybody's different. So I think because we did that doesn't mean that that's what everybody should do. But that just seemed a natural... We, it was a cry for help, really. Um, you know, we knew we needed prayer support. Um, and so we wanted as many people as possible. At, and it was a cry for help, but also it was a... It was a, It was a. It was to protect ourselves as well because we we wanted people to know so that people then didn't just assume everything was fine and and then make some comment that then was going to be really hard for us and then really awkward for them. So we really wanted the news shared as widely and as openly as possible. And it wasn't easy to explain what was going on you talk a little bit about well she wasn't sick but then it felt strange using that word abnormalities help us understand a little bit about what were what were the challenges that she had various nicknames butterbean whoosh whoosh tell us about what were the the huge challenges that she was facing in terms of what had been seen in the scan um the the main the main finding was that she didn't have very much fluid round about her and the amniotic fluid protects the baby, but also it helps the baby's lungs and kidneys to develop. Um, so that was the main thing. Um, and then there were a variety of other things, just slightly, slightly not quite right shaping of different parts of her body. Um, there was an arm that um, where the hand looked clawed and it looked as if the arm was useless. Um, there was some slight abnormality in the lining of the the brain, the um, the tissues surrounding the brain. So the, just all these wee bits and bobs 
And uh, the, the doctor, his name, I had to use Dr. Matthew for the book, but what he said was there was nothing major, major to see, but just lots of little things that all added up to something very big. But all the words that he used were very clinical. Um, he knew I was a doctor um, by this stage. And, and so he used clinical words to me. And those were the words that I had then. And if I used those words to other people, it seemed very, it made me seem very cold and detached. So that so that in terms of my work colleagues, some of them just took it for granted that I would have a termination. They didn't even ask. But if we used other words, then people would say, oh, it'll be fine. Or, or what treatment can you get? Or it was just really difficult to explain to people that there was nothing that could be done. Was that a, a hard line to walk? Because I imagine within church community, church family, friends, they would have potentially been praying for her healing and recovery. The hardest bit for me was I I, um, I was at a conference um, for folks who were fairly recently into parish ministry. Um, and one of the speakers uh, at the conference was, was someone who had quite a, a well-known healing ministry in Scotland. Um, and I remember speaking to him after the, the session about whether he'd ever prayed for the unborn. And, and so we had a conversation around that. Um, he, was, he was helpful. Um, he had prayed for the unborn. He was cautious in terms of, I'm not just going to jump in and, and do this right away, you know, lay hands on your wife, kind of come tomorrow kind of thing. He was much more cautious than that. And, and during that cautious conversation, I, I, I had a strong sense of um, um, we're not after this. Somehow it's not right. I did not feel that I had the faith to. I didn't feel that it was right in any sense for us to expect some kind of reversal of the diagnosis. Um, just no sense of that, that that was something that we should be going for or looking for or expecting. And Karen, after that first appointment, it wasn't that you had spoken about termination at that point, but you had been given an option of some kind of test. Help us understand a little bit more about what CVS is. Um, amniocentesis, which would be the normal test to see if there's any um, chromosomal abnormality, is, is taking a sample of the amniotic fluid. Um but chorionic villa sampling is where they actually go and they take a little bit of the um, the tissue. I, I'm, I, I mean, this is a long time ago, Vicky. I'm not remembering properly, but I think either from the placenta or you know from thereabouts. So you know, not not touching the baby, but obviously there's less fluid. You've got a needle. You're taking tissue, um, which is a bit more um, tricky than taking something from a big bag of fluid. So there's just there's there's a slightly increased risk of of spontaneous um, abortion, spontaneous termination of the pregnancy with chorionic villa sampling. I mean, people still have it done, and it you know doesn't always cause that, but there's a slightly increased risk. And uh, doctor had said he thought it was important um, that we have it for the sake of future pregnancies. He said so that we would know what we were dealing with. And that was a very that was a very um, that 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 seemed very sensible on the on the Monday, and I think I think what he gave us in terms of the three days was a great gift and and actually incredibly unusual. I didn't realise how unusual it was um, until afterwards that many 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 people 
don't get given that three days because your thinking's not your thinking's not right. Your head's your head's not straight when you get that kind of news because you're shell shocked. Um, and suddenly being given decisions to make on day one of hearing that kind of news is is you know isn't fair really um, because people then make decisions that they later horribly regret. And I've met people that have horribly regretted decisions that, that were made that quickly. But we were given three days, which doesn't sound like a lot, but actually that was huge. Karen, from obviously going back to the hospital, deciding against having CVS, then what happened for the rest of the pregnancy? Because it's a weird dynamic of knowing that at some points the worst could happen. You might not go full term but obviously also hoping that you might reach that milestone. Well, that's right. Um, I mean, the great hope was that we would get to meet Jennifer. Um, but at the same time, I was I, I, I was anxious um, just just about my physical condition, um, just because the the because doctor said that he felt the pregnancy was not likely to go to term. He thought it probably wouldn't, and I'd I'd not had a miscarriage before, and I was. Scared, I think, really, of what that would be. Um, and so um, people didn't leave me on my own. I was either at work, uh, driving to and from work, which was a bit of a commute, but, but I, I was generally looked after by, there'd always be somebody with me. Um, and when I was on maternity leave, my friends and family, there was always somebody with me. I was at a conference at one point, and so I stayed with friends, um, so, you know, it's, it's a long time ago and it's difficult to remember back, right back into that. But reading my diaries, I was really well looked after by friends, by colleagues, um, by family um, who, who kept me company in case something like that would happen, in case I went into early labour. And Jennifer's diaries, you started before you knew about the prognosis. Was keeping diaries like that was something that you've always done or what triggered it for Jennifer? I don't know what triggered it for Jennifer. So it's really strange. I mean, firstly, that I bought just a really small notebook, um, which shocks me because why did I buy such a small notebook when I, I, I don't know, maybe I didn't realise I was going to write so much. I'm not sure. And I bought I bought a really pretty one that had uh, a really lovely cover. Um, but if Jennifer had been a boy, you know, would have been really inappropriate. But of course, I didn't know at that time that she was a boy. Um, I just thought it would be, I, I'd written diaries as a child um, for myself and I just, I don't, and I like, I like books that are diaries, like Daddy Longlegs, I don't know if you've come across that book. I love books that are letters and diaries and um, so I just thought a diary for her would be a nice thing to do. And tell us a bit about Dr Al Rumi because you did eventually have to start thinking about how to prepare for Jennifer's birthday. It was a hope-filled conversation, but a very practical one as well. Yeah, it was hope-filled. So I had to see her because I went for a scan, which was which gave the prognosis of very poor for Jennifer being able to be born vaginally. We wanted to give Jennifer the best chance. And so we asked for a section. And because I was asking for a section, we were asking for a section. I had to meet a pediatrician. And she was lovely. She she wanted the whole story from the beginning. She was 
there were tears in her eyes as she was listening and she just she just was so concerned for for our baby she was hopeful she also said um i mean she was wrong she she said oh things might not be as bad as they look in the scan and they were but the fact that she gave me that bit of hope was was really helpful because i was at a really low ebb at that point and 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 thinking that everything's really hopeless um, and the fact that Dr. Alrumi gave me that bit of hope really helped. It felt like God was giving me that so that I could keep loving and hoping for this child. And Gordon, describe to us what happened on Jennifer's birthday. It was Tuesday the 3rd of August. You knew, of course, that this C-section was going to take place. What do you uh-huh. remember of that day? I remember, um, well, Karen had gone into hospital the, the day before. So on, on the Monday night, I... I was I was alone um, in the mountains, and I remember going in to the hospital on the first day. And as I as I walked up the road um, uh, to the hospital, um, I came across um, a car um, with with a, a Christian sign on it, and also a, a text on the back of the of the car. Um, and I remember I can't remember the text actually. <laughs> I just remember that being. Being so affirmed by that, as I was as I was going there, there was something that was just you know a, a kind of word. I stopped and I wrote a wee note and stuck it on the on the guy's windscreen, um, and then um, just continued on. Both set, both parents, both sets of parents wanted to to come obviously and be there and be there for us, um, and I, and so I just remember a kind of juggle of trying to kind of keep everyone in touch. Um, the the uh, the section the delivery was very fast um it was um it was the first op of the day um i just remember um the only time i kind of any urgency came from doctors he said you'll reach out and touch her quick before he handed her over to um to be to be looked after we were given a, a at one point just a kind of it, it, this might not be so bad and and at that point, I, I felt really quite guilty, in as much as I, I had not really considered um, the possibility that we might be taking home a child who was severely disabled. I, I, that, I just hadn't um, thought about that, and I suppose there was about half an hour or forty minutes where that was kind of a possible out, outcome or scenario from what we were hearing, and I remember being thrown by that, to be honest. So just um, to explain, because there was some confusion, wasn't there, in, in hospital with the information that was shared about how well Jennifer was actually doing? Yes, that's right. Sorry. Yes, yes, you're correct. Um, I mean, Karen will give you more detail on that. Um, but uh, you know, just from the kind of, you know, she might not be born alive. She is alive. Um, as I say, first, at one point, word came back that maybe... Um, some of the organs were not as um, undeveloped as 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 they had feared, and so maybe this this would be a child who who would survive, um, albeit with with fairly severe um, um, disabilities. Um, so it was when that information was coming over that I kind of I kind of found myself thrown for a while, um, but then quite soon afterwards on a, on a visit just to the um, kind of intensive care bit that that was. It was. They were saying no. It's very clear that it's, it's at the moment. It's just the machine that's kind of keeping her alive, and so there's no chance of her surviving on her own. Karen, there was a gap, wasn't there, for you as well? You delivered Jennifer Grace, and then it was a while until you actually got to go and see her. 
Yes, because it was a section, um, it was about three and a half hours before I was able to go. And and certainly when I went upstairs, it had been one of the paediatricians um, that had come and said that everything looked actually not bad and everything was operable. Um, so it was really exciting. So I went upstairs thinking this is a baby that's going to live. Um, and it was only it was only getting upstairs um, at, and, and one of the doctors in, in special baby care coming over um, that we discovered that that actually wasn't the case, that the information we'd been given wasn't wasn't right. So, yeah, so she lived for five hours and, and I was there for an hour and a half, um, just the last hour and a half. Were you in that moment not angry at the miscommunication and, and what that meant? Um, I, I don't remember being angry, Vicky. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't remember being angry at all. I suppose it was the frustrating thing was that my parents left. I think the thing I was most perturbed about was my parents had left the hospital because they'd gone. They'd gone to look at prams. They thought, yeah, she's going to live. Let's go and look at prams. Um, and my dad. Um, my dad, who, who you know, was so upset about this afterwards, my dad thought, well, that's fine. I can go back and, and uh, chair the church meeting that I was going to be chairing. And so he left Glasgow um, and so he wasn't around. So that was, that was awful for him, um, not being around after Jennifer died. Um, and he felt terrible about that. So, you know, those were, those were the worst things, really. And Karen, you said you had just over an hour with Jennifer Grace. How precious, when you look back on that time, was it for you, becoming a mum at that point as well? Yeah, it it was it was lovely. I mean, it, it feels. I know it was an hour and a half, but when I think back, it it felt like an incredibly short time. So some of that time was just us standing, um, both of us standing. Um, looking at her and she was in an incubator, she was on a ventilator, she had various tubes. Um, but being able to put our our hands in the wee kind of portholes and, and if you put a finger down on her hand, then her fingers just curled around, she had that reflex. And we hadn't prayed for her healing, um, but we'd, we'd asked people to pray that she would be peaceful and comfortable. And that was really important because um, when there's not much amniotic fluid around the baby, as Gordon said, you know, it can be really awful in terms of the, the constrictions around a baby's limbs. There was no sign of that at all. Um, her ears were a wee bit pushed back, but her arms and legs moved perfectly normally and were, were there were no signs of these kind of constricting bands that are somewhere there. And it just seemed a real answer to prayer that she'd been comfortable um, despite the lack of amniotic fluid and and she just seemed very peaceful. And in the book you share of your confidence of of knowing that she is with God, safe with him, cosy cuddled and whole you say and this experience was also a healing time for your mum who obviously thought a lot about Keith following the arrival of Jennifer. It was amazing for my mum, uh, absolutely amazing, because her, her experience had been so different. Um, she'd not been able to hold Keith. Um, she'd not been able to sit in the hospital where he was even able to see her face um, from his cot. Um, and, and so she was able to come. when she By the time she came, Jennifer had, had died, but she was able to come and she was able to 
um, help us dress her. We'd taken some clothes and she helped us do that. And she took the photographs that we've got of Gordon and me with Jennifer. Um, and then she went and she had, I could hear her having a long conversation with the doctors and the nurses about Keith. And the doctors and the nurses were very gracious and lovely and, and just listened to her talk about Keith. And Gordon, of course, you went on to have a funeral service for Jennifer Grace. Not something that everyone who has been through baby loss or miscarriage always has. Why do you think actually that's such a valuable part of the grieving process? Well, actually, I think, uh, I mean, death anyway is is uh, kind of intangible for folk. And I, and I, you know, at any stage, you know, and, and encourage folks to go down the tangible <laughs> road as much as as they can and, and find things to to remember someone by and keep things and particularly when life was so short we we had measured i think on that during the pregnancy um i think during the pregnancy there was a we, we affirmed jennifer is with us you know and everything that we were doing because you know we weren't sure there was going to be anything much post-pregnancy and so we had already gone down that road of noting and keeping as much by way of things and the tangible experiences as, as, as possible. Um, and in a sense then to have to have the funeral, I think, was was another, you know, logical part of that. We also were just so grateful to so many friends and family members who'd been such a support that I think it was important for us and for them, you know, to gather as a community um, who had been through this together and who had shared this together. Having left hospital, returning home, fast forward the clock on, you eventually moved away from that community that had supported you. Was that an important part of your, your healing, your recovery, making that choice of, of changing the direction of where you were at in life? Absolutely not, in, um, in the sense that that it was it was a move from church to another church but but I, I very clear in my mind it was nothing to do with moving on from Jennifer or Jennifer's story um, absolutely not um i mean a few friends uh, you know made that connection in, in, incorrectly and said to us or oh, maybe you know you just need to, need to leave that part of you behind um no we we felt it was a different um stage and phase of ministry for us um but uh, no, it, it wasn't. A, we need to. We need to put this away or put this behind us. And Karen, how did you find returning to work? In the book, you talk about the normal invitations that come in life, like attending weddings and prize givings, and and trying to find some normality, even though Jennifer Grace was always going to be a part of your family. Yeah, going going back to work was really hard, and I think because. I think I think this is still the case that people don't like to talk about baby loss very much. And so although although my immediate colleagues, the people who were the same grade as me in terms of training, had been really supportive during the pregnancy and had come to the funeral, um, other colleagues, like senior colleagues, um, didn't didn't talk about Jennifer and hadn't hadn't prepared people for me coming back to work. So the, the worst the worst instant really was um, a lovely, lovely social worker who at the end of my first day said something along the lines, oh, you'll be keen to get home to your bouncing baby. 
and uh, that was just that was just awful and actually our our relationship was never quite the same again after that he always felt awkward with me after that and I thought that was a shame I went to see him because I, I had been really stressed and and obviously he had been really upset and the following day I'd gone and looked for him and had a conversation and said no it's okay it's not your fault but there just always remained an awkwardness between us after that which was just really sad that that was that, that was all preventable but what what isn't preventable are these other things weddings and and I suppose prize givings maybe aren't such a big thing anymore as they were then, but but where you had all these these parents with all these gorgeous gorgeous infants being carried forward to get their boot baptisms in church, um, we are, that's a, an infant baptism tradition that we are in in the Church of Scotland. Yeah, those were all those were all really hard, and that's there's nothing really that you can do about that. I don't think. Um, except be prepared and, and hopefully have people round about you that are sensitive to how difficult that is. What are the, the helpful, the constructive things that we can ask as a church community for a couple that has had that experience of baby loss, which perhaps as you shared, you know, we shy away, we, d- we feel awkward, we don't ask anything at all? Again, I think it's different for each couple or, or each each individuals so I think it's worth asking what what can we do to help what would be good I've, I've got to know quite a few um, lost parents on Instagram since the book was published because that's where I, where I went or where I was pushed to by uh, Sally our, our third daughter and one of the one of the women on there she's not a Christian lovely lovely woman she and her husband put out put out instructions really for their daughter's birthday the day that was going to be their daughter's first birthday but then said this is what we want you to do every year on her birthday um and her daughter's birthday is summer and so she said every year on this day we want you to treat it as the first day of summer we want you to eat ice cream put sunglasses on wear flip-flops and it's brilliant so I think I think uh, um something like that helps and the other thing is with children or anybody who has children, you know that they all like to talk about their children or grandchildren. That doesn't change when your child has died. Um, and it's just the loveliest thing for people to see, you know, what, what was she like? Who, who did she look like? What colour was her hair? What colour were her eyes? You know, anything at all. Why did you choose her name? That's such a pretty name. Um, just a normal questions and I know they're awkward but it's worth getting over the awkwardness to help people feel less alone. Some of the um, the kind of more general points really ought to be borne in mind I mean you should not say to anybody I know how you feel yeah, and, and I think that goes for any bereavement um, actually I think, I think people should just be banned from saying I know how you feel we might know something of what, what it's like if you've been through similar experiences, but we do not know how anyone feels. And so I think um, it's, it's, it, you, you might, the, mind, the best thing for folks is to move from the mindset of, I know what this must be like, to saying, I don't know. And because I don't know, I'm going to ask. That would be the best thing. Do you think John Bell's actions, writing the song, a cradling song, has helps many more within the church community engage through your own personal experience. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. We know John. We don't know John very well. Um, 
and, and it was a mutual friend who who lived uh, in with in Rochese at the time who missed the funeral because he was away doing ministry in a summer placement. Um, it, it was it was he who was having lunch or something with John and, and was just telling John the story of what had happened. He'd been away and had missed that and was sorry he'd missed it and was and told John. Um, and John, um, who who has a remarkable empathy for for all kinds of, of scenarios, I think he was on a train journey, um, not long after having been told about our story, and and he said the song just kind of poured out of him, just on on the train. Um, he wrote the words. The, the tune didn't come till much later, um, but but the words he he wrote at the time, I think. Um, it has, I mean, I don't know how much of impact it has gone, going on. I mean, it, it's it's now in the current Church of Scotland hymn book, actually, the CH4. Um, so folks obviously have used it enough or thought enough of it to include it. And I know of ministers who have taken funerals of um, babies um, who have read the words um, at, a, at a service. Quite right, well, a year ago, I think, maybe two years ago, I was in the house of one of our elders, whose sister uh, was a hospital chaplain in Edinburgh, and therefore had, in her work as a hospital chaplain, you know, been through many similar things. And the chaplain did not know that the song had been written about our daughter. Um, thought that the, the John called the tune Jennifer, um, and this hospital chaplain thought maybe that was a reference to Gordon Brown's baby Jennifer, who was just slightly after ours time-wise. Um, and then didn't know that. Um, and then on finding that out, she then quoted the whole of the first verse, just like that, to her sister, just sitting in the room. So this hospital chaplain, you know, who didn't know it was about us or anything, you know, was obviously carrying the, the words around with her. It's is obviously something that she had been doing and using in, 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 in her work. And, and that was lovely to hear, actually. Beyond just a cradling song, of course, Karen, you have your article peace and pain has gone on into so many different arenas to impact people's lives. And I guess that connection with Gordon Brown as well. Explain why you wanted to write that article in the British Medical Journal. The main substance of the journal is academic articles, but they also use what they call fillers, where you can just kind of tell me anecdotes and they give themes for them. So like a patient that's uh, affected my practice or, or something or other. So I, I had just put in this wee personal view. And the reason I did it was because there had been a personal view written by the father of a child who had um, been diagnosed again during pregnancy as having multiple abnormalities, which is what we were told. And they had opted for a termination. And he was just talking about how um, how difficult that had been um, and how, how they had felt rushed um, and they'd been in a kind of conveyor belt. They, they'd been put in the position of having to make decisions when, they, when their minds weren't straight and they'd been kind of rushed through it. And he just talked about, about that. And I thought, goodness, we had three days and what a difference those three days made. And I thought that was worth, that was worth sharing. I was writing it for doctors who might be in a position to give people those three things. That made it worth telling. And I also wanted to explain what unfolded um, through us making a very different decision. And of course, 
following that, you went on to be a part of, of more conversations looking into to care. You have two beautiful grown-up daughters now. Ruth, who of course has started her own family, Sally, an adult too. What is the lasting thought to Jennifer Grace and what God has taught you? even today, is still teaching you through her legacy. That he's intimately involved in our life, um, that he's here, um, and, and that, he, that he loves us even when we're not at all perfect. Um, you know, that message from the Monday of Holy Week service um, was that God, God loves people that we view as unimportant. And that... that you know, that doesn't just apply to Jennifer, you know, that applies to lots of us who might feel we're unimportant or lots of other people that we might view as unimportant, that God loves them and treasures them. Um, but also that he, he's with us in, in everything that we're going through. I, I want to encourage, encourage folks to keep on or finding ways of keep on acknowledging and remembering. You know, we've already said people are, are different, so you have to be careful or maybe some folks are just going to want to move away from the experience and you have to, I suppose, allow them to if they're going to do that and want to do that. But for, for those who, you know, like Karen and I were, um, you know, finding it helpful for others to be part of the experience, I, I, I think if there are ways you can keep on remembering and keep on honouring that in, in someone or for someone can be very, very helpful. I mean, we've, really appreciated that when it came to the the, the baptism of the two uh, of Ruth and Sally um, without us asking the ministers who were taking the service they they both included Jennifer in the service um, we've really valued folks who have mentioned in the Christmas cards um, Jennifer um, you know we've we've appreciated that and I so I think where folks you know have allowed you to be part of it then I think I would say to folks, please do what you can to remember that you can still be part of it 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. Because another thing that you know struck, has struck us um, is that when we went through this and things, you know, so many people have come and said, you know, this happened to me too, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And, and, for, and, you know, and we're st- even last year still finding out this about folks. Um, and so people carry the the soreness and the dislocation and a lot of folks who carry that from years gone by when it wasn't talked about and brushed under the carpet, you know, they're, they're still hurting. So I, I think if we find ways to um, bring that to the surface for folks, it's important not just to do that and then say, oh, you know, five minutes later, be have moved on from it, but as much as possible to, to carry it with them. Karen and Gordon Palmer, thank you so much for sharing Jennifer Grace's story with us on UCB. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Jennifer Grace's life may have been a short one, but God used the waiting for her arrival and her physical presence in those few hours to impact so many people's lives. As Karen has shared through her daughter, they have received a clear demonstration of God's love and care for the damaged and vulnerable and of God's intimate involvement with each of us. We've been exploring Karen Palmer's book, which is called Jennifer, A Life Precious to God. 
It's published by Instant Apostle and Karen has included numerous links and resources to support anyone who's experienced or wants to understand more about baby loss.